0: This is Maxine and the Planets Unknown, a sci-fi audiobook in podcast form. Written by, performed by, and produced by me, Brad Lawrence. And guys, uh, still in the tiny little room in Brooklyn during the pandemic. We all know that's still the case. But guys, we are really getting down to the thing here. Uh, We are, this is the third to last episode. There'll be two more episodes after this, and we are finally getting to the end of Maxine's story. I hope you guys have enjoyed it uh, as much as I've enjoyed writing it and performing it and putting it out there for you. Um, all right, and just looking forward to today's episode. So, this is uh, Maxine and the Planets Unknown, episode 23, chapters 53 and 54. Chapter 53. The three of them sat there in the spore haze. The initial blast had sent Laurent into a coughing jag. Mars natives were often a bit sensitive to allergens, and she was no exception. She also wasn't the only one. Maxine had looked over at Sumner and noticed that he was red faced and his eyes were closed. He was clearly trying to restrain a coughing fit of his own. So much had been happening. So much was pressing. So much was at stake and already lost. She was having a hard time keeping pace with all the information coming at her. But seeing Sumner gripping his midsection with one arm and turning all of his focus to keeping his body rigid, she started to really take in just how injured he was. She felt like she could see what he was afraid of. That one cough and the plug of medical foam keeping his insides in place would shoot across the room and he would keel over right there, dead before his eyes even closed. She put her hand on his shoulder. He opened his eyes and looked at her with strained deliberation. But he didn't lose it. He just breathed deep until he was sure the urge to convulse had passed. It took more than a few minutes. Finally he said, Maxine, we have got to get out of here. I don't know what you have been through out here or what this place has been showing you, but you can't trust it. We have to get back to the ship, to the dock. I don't know I don't know what's been happening, but you you're the only one who wasn't affected or wasn't affected in the same way, and Sandoval, she thinks that might be important. And also I gotta tell you, I'm pretty sure I could use a once-over from the doctor myself. Sumner Gray, dedicated to understatement, right to the end. Maxine looked him in the eyes. She understood where he was at. He was right where she likely would have been this morning, committed to the idea that there was a solution to all of this that what was happening was a thing they could understand and apply their willpower to and come out the other side. That was humanity's idea of its best self, the problem solvers. Can't get off the ground? Build wings. Can't get off the planet? Build a spaceship. Can't get out of the solar system? Build century ships. But in all that time, humanity had never encountered anything like oxalus. This was a will bigger than their own, and a master of its constituent parts. It was an entity the like of which they had never conceived of. They were out of their depth here, and they were wrong. Maybe she saw it because of all the things she had seen and all the lives she had lived in this single day, or maybe she saw it because Unlike the rest of the citizens of the Contiki, she had already had to question the essential worth of their journey and their existence. She thought she had long since, if not settled the question, made peace with the uncertainty of it all. But maybe the fact was she had walked out of the ship today as the person most likely to understand that their place in this galaxy was not a given. It was not justified by anything beyond the fact that it was happening. And if it stopped happening, the universe would roll on as it always had. They were not inevitable. Dad, this isn't something that is going to be fixed for the shot from Dr. Sandoval. This place is alive and it's intelligent. It makes its own choices about who can live here and it's It's not going to choose us just because we get a drug. It's not going to choose us at all. It has never chosen anyone. I cannot make you see what I have seen to help you understand this, but I don't want to spend our last bit of time together with you in pain, trying to get back to the ship for no real purpose. I want to... What? You want to what? I want to share... Some things with you that I should have a very long time ago. It's too late for everything else, but it has given me this time and the means to do that. And I'm sorry, but I'm pretty sure that is all we're going to get. Maxine, we can't just give up. I don't think that's up to us anymore. I'm the sheriff. I have responsibilities to the town, to you. That's not up to you anymore either. Just be here with me for this. I need to show you something before the end, and the end is coming. It cannot be stopped. Sumner shook his head, still reaching for fatherly wisdom. Maxine, who told you? that it can't be stopped. I did, said Mr. Humphreys. Laurent abruptly stopped coughing. Sumner stared hard at the badger in the suit that had not been there just a second ago. What in the Sam Hill? Laurent dropped to her knees and spoke in quiet wonder. "Mr. Mr. Humphreys? Sumner glanced her direction, then back to the Badger, then to Maxine. Isn't that... Is that the thing from your books? Mr. Humphreys arched an eyebrow at the sheriff. Then he said to Maxine, They are ready, and I am ready. Are you ready, Miss Maxine? She took a deep breath and said, Yes, I'm ready. It was only partly a lie. Chapter 54 Sumner was a nine-year-old girl. Laurent was a nine-year-old girl again. Maxine was her nine-year-old self. Oxylus was all of them and everything and everywhere, and it was a nine-year-old girl. And it was its first time being that. Maxine was nine years old and she was getting a bit bored of the park. The park was hydroponic cell three. It was one of several hydroponic cells on the Contiki, but most of them were off limits to anyone who didn't work there. But three and six had been set aside as dual purpose facilities. They were both bringing hardy temperate zone earth plants to Oxalus for possible integration, and keeping the passengers from feeling like they were concrete dwelling mole people who never experienced sunlight. Of course, the sunlight in question was artificial sunlight, coming from an array of solar lamps and the concrete was only a few feet away, but beggars trapped in a metal tube in the vacuum of space can't be choosers. All that said, the parks were very popular. So popular, in fact, that in order to use them, you had to get on a wait list for a block of time. Time that you would share with up to 60 other passengers. Wait time was dependent on how much time you wanted to reserve and how large a party you wanted to bring. As Maxine's parents had reserved five hours for her entire playgroup, about a dozen kids in all, their wait time had been considerable. So, it did not matter how bored Maxine might be. She already knew that her mom's answer would be, Suck it up. We're here to the end. So, Maxine would be bored. And when Maxine was bored, she got easily distracted. The problem was that Maxine had already put the other kids through all the hoops she could think of. She was the undisputed leader of the playgroup and the self-appointed activities director. As such, she had orchestrated a game of tag, a game of dodgeball, and a game she had made up just that day called Frozen. Frozen was a game where Maxine stood at the top of what the kids called Old Man Mountain, which was actually an extremely gentle rise in the carefully landscaped terrain and all the kids then got into a wide circle around Maxine. Then she would call out each kid's name in turn and say, unfrozen, and then frozen. They had the space of time she decided to allot between the two words to make it as far as they could toward her. The first one that reached her and tagged her became the new Ice Master and took over Maxine's spot. Then Maxine joined the rest of the kids, and they all went back to starting positions. The first one to reach her had been Cody Fenton. That was no surprise. Cody had long legs and was pretty fast. He was also the competitive sort, the kind who, when frozen, would still be leaning forward through everyone else's turn until she got back around to him. Even though she was quick to call frozen on him, he still made more headway than the rest, no matter how little time she gave him. Right on his heels had been Joey Sanchez, but for the opposite reason. Short and chubby, Joey was the least athletic kid on the ship, but that in no way deterred him from wanting to take part in all the most physical games. Maxine admired how hard he always tried, and so she, without making it too obvious, gave him a little extra time before she called frozen. Of course, not every kid was up for the running around kinds of activities. There were always those kids who were just not up for anything too physical or too group oriented. Sylvia Janish spent most of the first part of the day reading a book about some kids who found another world of talking animals inside a closet. Though Sylvia was often pretty quiet, she had, with only the most minor bit of encouragement, laid out pretty much the whole book for Maxine right up to the page she was on right then. Maxine had made a mental note to check it out, or at least to see if there was a VR. Darius Jackson was drawing, as usual. Monsters, as usual. As usual, Maxine found the monsters disturbing and a little gross, but she made a show out of seeming impressed. The one thing almost everyone was up for, though, was the play. The play did not have an official title. Weirdly, none of Maxine's plays ever had a title, and she wrote a lot of plays. So when her parents would ask them about them, usually for the entertainment of other adult dinner guests, it was always phrased as the play about the horse or the play about the baby comet. Then Maxine would tell all the adults about the baby comet and the adventures that it had in the course of the play. Then two things would always happen. The first is that they would ask what the play about the baby comet was called. Maxine would look at them like they were asking ridiculous questions and say, it's called the play about the comet. Then they would ask if she would perform the play for them right then, and Maxine would have to say, I can't. I already performed that one. Maxine did not seem to have internalized the concept of a theatrical run. In her mind, every time you went to perform a play, that had to be a brand new play that you made up for just that occasion. Her elementary school age cast had just accepted this logic and the fact that anytime Maxine said, let's put on a play, they were starting from scratch. The play they had put on this time was highly derivative of a certain book series that Maxine herself was working through at that very moment, a series starring a little girl and a badger. In earlier years, she likely would have just called the characters Selina and Mr. Humphreys. But recently, she had cottoned on to the notion that when you make up a play or a story, it should be original. She still had a little ways to go so far as understanding that there are more ways to make something original than just coming up with different names for the characters and the places they went to. But even being a great author is a learning curve. She also had not taken the lead role. Again, in earlier years, she might have insisted on doing just that, but she has started to become aware that it was good to let others shine sometimes, that it made them feel good, and in turn, it could make you feel good. So, Cherie had been given the role of Suzanne, and Darius, having exhausted his internal wellspring of mutants for the day, was given the role of the talking dog companion Mr. Grumps. Maxine had stuck to a directorial role for this one, mainly because she also was the writer and was writing it largely improv style. This consisted of figuring out which scenes from the Selena Simon series she wanted to see her classmates ape in real life and then telling them what to do right before she sent them out to do it. This resulted in some measure of confusion and a tendency on the part of the players to go wildly off script. This was understandable as the only place the script existed was inside Maxine's head. Maxine was not unreasonable. She was no tyrant. She believed in supporting her actors. She accomplished this by shouting directions at them from behind a shrub. This meant that every emotional beat of the narrative was punctuated with the actors staring blankly offstage at a plant, waiting for it to tell them what to do next. The play was a huge success in spite of its avant-garde production elements, mainly because the audience consisted of her parents, her grandparents, who had tagged along more for the added park time than for the stimulating theater provided by pre-teen auteurs, and... Mrs. Costas, Sylvia's mother. After the bows were given and the applause received, Maxine's mom and dad had come over to tell her how talented she was. For years after, Maxine would replay this exchange over and over in her head. Her mom had hugged her and fixed her with her huge brown eyes and said, Sweetheart, you are such a talented girl. The things Maxine would remember, long after so much else had faded and been consigned to the custodianship of digital memory, was her mom's eyes and the left side dimple when she smiled. Her impression of her mom's eyes were that they had the kind of way of making you feel like you were the only thing they'd ever seen or ever wanted to see, like you had every inch of her attention. From her earliest age, everything that Maxine had said or done had called down the all-encompassing focus of those eyes, and being enveloped by them by her mother's attention had been the warmest place in the world. Years after, when friends of her parents had found it their duty to seek Maxine out and to tell her what they remembered of her parents, they too would comment on her mother's eyes. These moments would always be awkward. They meant well. They wanted to give her something of what they'd had of her parents and that they thought she would treasure. But their memories were always a disjointed jumble that Maxine could not fit into her own vision of her parents. Rather than filling in the blanks, they just stretched them all out of shape. If any of these people were great storytellers, they inevitably faltered when faced with Maxine as an audience, and their tales came out jumbled and devoid of context. Just little bits of their youth, an abstract and unreliable thing in the best of occasions, dropped into the middle of Maxine's day as a little montage of moments that basically said to her, here are random glimpses of all the ways you will never know your parents who will forever be frozen for you as who they were when you were nine years old. Here, let me hint at how small and inadequate that is while it is already fading. Of course, Maxine couldn't have said any of that. She wouldn't have been able to organize the nature of her discomfort with these conversations until she was much older. She just knew that she was uncomfortable She knew that she wanted these exchanges to end almost as soon as they began, and that she could not say so. She had to indulge these people with whom her only connection was death. Her dad, who she would always remember as huge, even after VR and flat-screen evidence made it clear that he was tall but skinny, had said to her, Honey, that was great. I almost thought you wrote it. Maxine said, Dad, I did write it. You did? Are you sure? Yes. Because it sounded like William Shakespeare to me. Maxine could not have named a William Shakespeare play beyond Romeo and Juliet, which she did not know the plot of. But she knew he was very famous and that her father was being deliberately silly. Dad, you're being silly. I know. It's pretty cool, huh? Her mom decided to take back control of this conversation. Your dad is a goofball, but you are my super talented girl who is going to be so much more famous than silly old William Shakespeare. What's next on the agenda, maestro? Are you guys going to put on another masterpiece? No, Jamie brought along a hollow projector. So we're going to play hollow grab. Her dad nodded like this made total sense. Well, Thank God we reserved all this time with grass and plants and open spaces so you guys could play the hollow projector. Dad, you're being silly again. Am I? He looked at her mother. I'm pretty sure I was being super cool, like even cooler than I was five minutes ago. Her mom rolled her eyes. Have fun with your friends, sweetheart, but try not to get too dirty, because we're going to go right to dinner from here, okay? Okay. And that was the last true conversation she ever had with her parents. It wasn't bad as far as last conversations go, but it was a last conversation. And no matter how many times she played it over and over in her head in the coming years, it would never offer more than what was already there. Her mom lovingly praising her obvious plagiarism and her dad making jokes, and then some passing remarks about dinner. And that was it. No parting wisdom that she carried with her for the rest of her life, nothing that told her that their deaths, their absence from her life, had any larger purpose. She would think at least she hadn't been a brat, something she'd been prone to as a kid when she was overtired or underfed or just didn't get the exact thing she had built up in her mind as the single most important thing she could ever possibly need and would then forget about within days. She would come to be grateful that her parents died, thinking that she was really good at ripping off famous authors like B.A. White instead of that she could be a little monster when her blood sugar got low. Grateful, but not satisfied. There is no way to be satisfied when all you will ever want is more of someone who is completely beyond your reach. What happened was she lost her pad. Oh, had she failed to mention that her family's death had been entirely her fault? The shipboard therapist, Mr. Castle had told her this was not true at all and that it was no one's fault that she had not done anything that anyone else might do. He told her that the asteroids that hit the ship that day were a freak occurrence that no one person could be held responsible for. He told her that he misplaced things all the time and then his wife would help him look for them. And if she were to fall and hurt herself in the process, that would be no more his fault, than it would be the floor's fault for her landing on it because All of this was stuff that normal people did. People forgot things. People made small mistakes, and their friends and loved ones helped them with them. And Maxine did not believe a word of it. But the desperation in Mr. Castle's voice that he was trying so hard to disguise had made her refrain from saying so. In later years, Maxine would look back on that with the feeling that he had spent sleepless nights reading everything he could on what to do with a kid who had just survived the death of a parent, or both parents, or all of her grandparents, cramming like she was a test that he was terrified not to pass. Looking back, he'd been clearly afraid to admit that he was in over his head. At the time, Maxine just knew that it was important, very, very important to this adult that she believe him, that she be all better. She just wanted to give him whatever he needed so that his need would stop. She didn't want to be trouble for him or for anyone else. To be fair to Mr. Castle, He had a pretty full dance card. Maxine was not the only person that had lost someone in the accident. She was just the only person who had lost everyone. Her grandparents had been doomed, and that was not Maxine's fault. That was her paternal grandfather's fault. Being a man that was always looking for a way to game the system... He had reserved an extra hour in the park for after the playgroup's time had ended. Then he had talked to the other three grandparents into coming along as chaperones for the five hours of park time that had been reserved in her father's name, which was the full month's allotment for her dad. That way, the grandparents would only be down one hour each, but they would have gotten in six. She remembered that her dad always said of his dad that... He always has an angle. Maxine did not understand that at the time, but he would say it with a little smile. So at the end of the playgroup's five hours, Maxine's parents, with the help of Mrs. Costas, had rounded up all the kids and started herding them toward the door. Her grandparents had stayed behind waved to all the kids, and just as Maxine was about to turn away, her maternal grandmother had pulled a bottle out of her bag that she hadn't had out when the kids were there. Maxine knew that meant her grandparents were going to do grown-up stuff now, and grown-up stuff involved drinking things that were gross. They got all the kids out the door and into the corridor that led to the elevators that would take them back to town when a little rush of panic hit Maxine. My pad! Her mom had looked at her. I left my pad in the park. Her dad had said, Well, it's probably back at the picnic spot. I'll text your grandpa to do. But what if it's not? It could be anywhere, and Grandpa won't look hard. Her dad looked helplessly at her mom. Maxine said, Let me go look for it. I know where I was. Then Cody said, I'll help Maxine look. This led to an avalanche of preteen volunteers. Her mom put one hand out toward the kids and then one hand on her father's arm. Oh no, it was hard enough rounding all of you up the first time. We'll go look while you guys follow Mrs. Costas down to the elevator. You too, Maxine. Her father and mother walked back through the doors to hydroponic cell three. Maxine watched them through the window anxious to see one of them pick up her precious pad. She watched them walk over to where her grandparents sat together with smiles on their faces. They looked up as their kids approached with just the mildest concern. Her mom started saying something to them. Mrs. Costas called out, Come along, Maxine. Maxine lingered on them for just a second longer. Her dad's name was Peter. Her mom's name was Stella. Her grandparents on her dad's side were Elliot and Sandra. On her mom's side, they were Samson and Maria. But she would always just think of them as her parents and grandparents, her mom and dad, her grandmas and grandpas. She would think of them as the spaces left absent forever by their loss. And this last lingering second, before she turned away to follow her friends, was the last time she would ever see any of them. There was a tinkling sound that Maxine barely even registered. Others noticed it and looked off starboard quarter with mild concern. If things had gone right, that should have been the only sound anyone heard that day. And if you could freeze that sound and separate it from all that came next, you might say that there was a strange sort of lazy violence or an accidental menace in the light-plinking sound. By itself, you might dismiss that sound, the little shiver of discomfort, and move on. But it was not by itself, and things did not go right. The next sound was brief. It was a rending sound that came from everywhere at once, filled every cavity of every person's body with a pure, raw moan of the heartbreak of destruction, Then there was a second of roaring that was almost immediately amputated, cut off mid-howl, like it had been bitten and swallowed by silence itself. For Maxine and her classmates, there was a sensation like being inside a popping balloon. Things around them seemed to swell and heave and exhale. They felt squeezed and buckled. Most of them dropped to their knees or curled onto their sides as the floor seemed to quake and shift Beneath them, the air pressure seemed to rush around the room like it was confused or desperate to get out, and when it stopped, it felt twice as heavy as it had before. The kids lay scattered. There were bloody noses and torn scalps, one concussion. A few vomited. Mrs. Costus had been bounced up and smacked into a handrail in a kind of flying hip check, that snapped her femur just below the joint. She was in too much pain to scream and just kept gulping air like a fish on land. Maxine found herself bruised and nicked, her back hurt from being tossed in her butt and then slammed into the wall. She was disoriented and her vision was doubled for just a moment, then, It came back together and she looked back up toward the door to where her parents should be coming from to gather her up and explain to her what was happening. Through the window in the door, the window that looked in on the park, where she had watched her parents walking back to her grandparents just seconds before, where there should have been the yellow-white of the solar lights, There was nothing, just blackness. This has been Maxine and the Planets Unknown by Brad Lawrence. Intro music, Bumbling by Pictures of the Floating World. Outro music, Children by the Creek by Chad Crouch. Thank you for listening.